Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartim, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. or on the web at seu.edu slash apex. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. All right. Well, welcome in, everybody. I'm so happy for everyone who's listening. And for those of you who listen to this in the podcast later, welcome to the Apex Hour. This is Lynn Vartan. And today we are celebrating an annual event that we have here on our campus, which is our Faculty Distinguished Lecture. Uh, our, our exclusive guest this year and award winner is Christopher Phillips. And we are going to get into talking about philosophy and humanities and science and all things education and all of his research. So welcome into the studio, Chris. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, congratulations on your award. Um, We are so excited to celebrate our scholarship and our faculty, and you are the newest recipient of it. How did you feel about today? Uh, I feel great. Um, It's really an incredible honor to be selected by uh, my colleagues and the folks at SUU for this honor, for this award. Um, I'm really proud of the the talk I gave earlier today. Um, It's been a a kind of a long time coming, and uh, I think it came together relatively well, so I'm feeling great. Yeah, it was great. So we want to get into um, telling everybody a little bit about what you do and your areas of specialty. And of course, I can just read your bio, but hearing it in your (laughs) own words is really great. I mean, I kind of know what you teach and what your specialties are, but if you could share those with your audience, that would be awesome. I would love to. Um, So I am an associate professor of philosophy here at SUU in the Department of Languages and Philosophy. Um, I joined the department in 2014 and... uh, um, I, I specialize, uh, as so many people do, um, in early modern philosophy. And at least in philosophy, the early modern period is the 17th and 18th century. We sometimes call that the Enlightenment. Um, and uh, I, I did my doctoral work on the philosophy of uh, Descartes. And uh, since then, um, you know, I've kind of expanded quite a bit. I, I do some work in pre-college philosophy, so trying to get philosophy into high schools and, and middle schools around the country. Um, I've, I do some work in the philosophy of education, uh, obviously also in my, my own area of specialization, um, and just kind of broad-reaching interests uh, in all of philosophy. I think all of it is fascinating and really wonderful. So that's so cool. And I know that you have, um, you, you've written so many articles and, and you do so many unique tie-ins, um, with popular themes. And I can't wait to get into all that, but I'm sure everybody would love to know, you know, how did you get into philosophy? I mean, I know it's, it's an interest that, that piques a lot of people, but then to go deep into it, what sort of made that transition for you? Yeah, um, that's a really great question. So, uh, growing up, my dad was an English professor. Um, so I was familiar with university life. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I thought English was probably the way to go, but, 
I think probably like a lot of students, I had no idea what I wanted to do with myself as I went into college. And so I tried my hand at a bunch of different things. I, I think as an undergraduate, I changed my major maybe seven or eight times. No way. <laughs> I transferred schools. Um, I, you know, I didn't know what to do. Yeah. Um, so I started off actually in business. Oh. Uh, I was in marketing and advertising. Wow. Um, I, it seemed like I was pretty good at it, but I didn't, it, it wasn't my thing. Yeah. Um, and so I transferred schools and then, uh, tried out my hand at English at, um, accounting at marketing at uh i i kind of thought about law school for a while um and uh and it it was when i took a, a formal logic class that i just I, I i found my place wow um i don't know it just it's everything clicked it made sense it sounded fun it was really cool uh and then i ended up taking more and more philosophy and um you know, then, then kind of had that moment. I graduated with a philosophy degree and I thought, well, what do I, what do I do now? Yeah. Um, got a job like many people do. Uh, I managed a corporate restaurant for a little while. No way. I did. Um, about 18 months. Wow. Um, and I, you know, that again, it was, it was not something I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Right. I thought, you know, there are other things I think I want to do. So I applied to graduate schools and, um, got my master's degree, then went on to get my PhD. Mm. And and fell in love with teaching while I was in graduate school. And so that's how I ended up here. That is so cool. So that really speaks to so many things that I think could really resonate with our with with students, with with anybody listening. And that is that you just kept trying different things on until you really found kind of what clicked and what where you found purpose. And mm -hmm. would you say that that's kind of that sense of purpose? Uh, you know, still resonates with you now in your teaching. Uh, and then related to that, is that something that you think is important for students to find? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's really easy, um, to fall into what I think is a trap. Uh, you find something that you're good at and that maybe, uh, directly leads to a job or mm -hmm. something like that. And it's like, well, okay, I'm good at it. I can do it. Uh, seems like that's what I should do. But if you don't like it, it doesn't matter if you're good at it. Right. Um, and so I think that was kind of what I ran into. I mm -hmm. was, yeah, I was fine in terms of managing a restaurant. That was okay. I could do it. Um, but it wasn't fulfilling. It wasn't interesting. It wasn't exciting. It wasn't the kind of life I wanted to live. Yeah. Um, and I found the same thing with marketing and with accounting and with other disciplines. I could do it and I could do it well enough. Um, but there's something different when you find that discipline or that area of study or whatever it is that just really clicks with you. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, that is some of my advice to students generally is, you know what, don't worry about where it's going to lead you yet. Just find the thing you care about. Um, because ultimately, as I said in the lecture today, I think, you know, really we're doing all of this because we want to figure out how to live a, a, the life we want to live. Yeah. And if you get a degree in something you hate, even if you're good at it, then you're, that's not a, a recipe for being happy yeah. or living well. Yeah. So. You, you said recipe or being happy just now. And I had a question brewing in my mind and I wasn't really expecting to go this deep this soon into it, but I wanted <laughs> to ask you, you know, uh, I was coming in saying sense of purpose. And then we talk about living well, living happy. And you were mm -hmm. saying something to care about. And sometimes uh, I feel, and I'm curious from the 
philosopher's perspective that when we focus on just happiness, Mm -hmm. that maybe that's also a bit misleading. And I was curious what your thoughts just in in the context of this particular last bit that we were talking about. Where do you think the happiness quotient? Is it is it happiness or fulfillment or is there yeah. a difference? What do you think? Awesome. Yeah. Uh, this is so good. So when I when I teach the intro to philosophy class, one of the one of the last parts that we do is we try to figure out what we mean when we say happiness. What what even is it? Everybody says they want it, but what is it? Um, and we look at a bunch of different views about what happiness might be. Um, the hedonists think, you know, happiness is just maximize pleasure, minimize pains. It's an easy recipe. If you can do that, you're good to go. Uh, there are other folks, desire satisfaction theorists, they'll say, well, it's about maybe the raw number of, of desires that you have that get satisfied as opposed to the ones that are left unsatisfied. Maybe it's a ratio, you know, above a certain threshold. You, that's what happiness is. Um, I don't know. I think the, I think the Greeks probably had it right. So Plato and Aristotle, uh, they have this much more robust notion of happiness. Uh, they'll talk about, um, eudaimonia, uh, which is sort of like a, a flourishing, a human flourishing. Oh, I don't know that um, term. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and to me that, that sounds right. So mm-hmm. it isn't just about, you know, kind of, day-to-day pleasures. It isn't about just making sure that you're fulfilling whatever wishes you have. It's really about exercising your capacities and your interests and your goals and, and, and sort of being the best that you can be at the things that you, that matter to you and that are important and that are valuable. Um, and I think that that, that form of happiness is, is what I kind of have in mind when I'm, when I talk about it. So I, Cannot agree more. And I want to tell me that word again. I, yeah, eudaimonia. Eudaimonia. Okay. Yeah. Is there any, since I'm immediately turned on to this, is there <laughs> any readings? Can you point me in the direction for me or for anybody else listening who might want to know more about this particular concept? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, there's so, there are so many things. Um, so th- there's some, uh, Martha Nussbaum is a contemporary philosopher. Um, an incredible scholar, and she kind of has a, a, an updated version um, of talking about individual capacities and flourishing and, and, and this sort of thing. Um, but for my money, it's, it's, it's Aristotle. Uh, the Nicomachean Ethics is a, just a spectacular text. Okay. Um, you know, I, I love Plato's Republic as well, and Plato talks about it there. Um, the central challenge of Plato's Republic is uh, Socrates comes out and, and kind of suggests that somebody who is just or, or sort of is, is a, a morally upstanding person is um, even if they sort of suffer from a negative and unearned bad reputation, they are still better off than the person who uh, is maybe not a very good person, but has the reputation of a good person. Mm. And so that's kind of the central challenge. And so then that leads them, of course, down a a lengthy discussion of the nature of justice and all of these different kinds of things. Um, But ultimately, it's in service of saying, you know, kind of having in their terms, like a harmonious soul, (laughs) um, having everything in order and balanced and, and, 
and everything else is what is true happiness. Oh, wow. Um, so I think, you know, Plato and Aristotle are the, the way to go. Okay, I have my marching orders. Well, that's great. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad we thank you for allowing me to go in that little direction there, because it just um, really sparked me as a, a curious interest. And I love like how we got into that. So that's great. It's already time for our first music break, oh, which is awesome and amazing. <laughs> um, and as many of you know, who listen, I love to turn you on to different kinds of music, different things that are turning me on. And um, one thing I, I, I think I've actually played before, but I'm going to play another version of it. Um, everybody, because I was sort of thinking, okay, we were talking philosophy, we're sort of getting into it, you know, and, and maybe uh, getting into some of the, the aspects of the mind and thinking. And that got me thinking about chess, which got me thinking about the Queen's Gambit, which got me thinking about Carlos Rivera, who is the composer for the Queen's Gambit, who is a dear friend of mine uh, who lives in Miami. And I just want to, uh, I know everybody loves this show, but I want to just point out how amazing the music is. Um, and I'm going to play you just another thing from the soundtrack. I think I've played a bit before. This is Borgov One. Uh, the composer is Carlos Rivera, and it's the soundtrack from The Queen's Gambit. You're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1.
Okay, everyone, we are back. You're listening to the Apex Hour, KSUU Thunder 91.1. That was one of the pieces from the soundtrack from the Queen's Gambit, and that particular one was called Borgov One. Um, It's one of the matches that she plays. Um, And that the composer is Carlos Rivera, who is absolutely amazing. Check out the soundtrack. Shout out to Carlos, who I absolutely adore. I have in the studio with me Chris Phillips, and we are talking all things things philosophy. Welcome back, Chris. Thanks so much. Okay, so I want to get into a couple of your specialties. Um, And Descartes is one that that you are just connected to and somebody who you have studied a lot. And I want to know why Descartes? How did that happen? What about him turns you on? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So I I never thought I would end up working on Descartes. Um, I never thought I would end up working on that specific area. Uh, when I first went to graduate school, I was originally thinking uh, philosophy of mind. Um, so uh, the kind of connections between older views of philosophy, psychology, neuroscience, uh, these sorts of things. Um, and that's what carried me through my first uh, master's degree. And um, I've, I've kind of kept up with that a little bit, not quite as much as, as I have with Descartes. But of course, Descartes is one of the foundation, foundational views that we still talk about in in the talking about the mind today. So for those who may not know anything about, so what's the, you know, 101 of Descartes? Cool. I mean, there's so many cool things about him, but probably the most famous thing we all know is I think therefore I am. That was him. And that showed up, uh, that phrasing doesn't show up in the meditations, which is what most students will end up reading, but shows up uh, in an earlier work called the Discourse on Method. And the idea... Basically, is is Descartes is uh, kind of going through this, what we would call an epistemological crisis. And epistemology is just the theory of knowledge. So, what is knowledge? How do we know it? What counts as evidence? That these kinds of questions are are all epistemic questions. Well, so he's going through this crisis because he's a, a 17th century thinker. Um, he's writing in the 1630s. And so at this time, there's a lot of things happening in Europe, just yeah. a huge number of things. So we have the English Civil War, the Thirty Years' War, the Scientific Revolution, Galileo's condemnation, right? Just, I mean, all kinds of things are just it, – it's an explosion of everything. And right. this all right on the heels of the, of the Renaissance as well. Yeah, um, And so – you know, we also have the development of scientific tools like microscopes and telescopes. And so the world around us all of a sudden doesn't seem quite so clear and understandable mm-hmm. as it once did. And so how do we adjudicate these kind of crises? Is the earth the center of the universe? Is the sun the center of the universe? Uh, the senses don't seem to tell us one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, now we all say, well, it's it's an easy answer. The sun is the center of the universe and the earth rotates around it. But when we think about our own sense experience, you know, we, we still talk about the sunrise and the sunset. Um, we don't talk about the sun becoming visible from our perspective because of the rotation of the earth. That's right. cumbersome and weird. Right. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's even cooked into our conceptual apparatus. We don't feel like we're spinning at a right. thousand miles an hour. Yeah. Um, but we are, yeah. or at least this is what we're told. And so, so what do we, what do we rely on? How do we figure out what's good and what's bad? Mm-hmm. And so Descartes engages in this process of saying, well, let's just kind of get rid of everything. Let's, let's, doubt everything that it's possible to doubt and see if we can build things back up um, using better principles or mm-hmm. something like this. And that's the the method that he's talking about. 
Uh, and uh, that's the method of the meditations. And so you get this sort of radical form of skepticism. And then we're trying to battle back from, from doubting everything. And one of the things that he says that we can't doubt is our own existence. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it doesn't take an argument. It doesn't take any, anything other than just sort of reflection. We can just see that we exist. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not anybody else, not sure about anybody else, but I know I exist. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and I can do that without, without anything sort of helping me. And then he tries to build up the rest of the world kind of from that foundation. Okay. Two related questions. One is how did you make the connection? Like what was the inroad for you? What was mm-hmm. the spark that turned you into the Descartes <laughs> scholar that you are? So uh-huh. that's the first one. Yeah. Um, well, so it was kind of happenstance. Mm. Uh, when I went to do my PhD, um, you know, there's breadth requirements for courses that you have to take. So you have to take courses in the history of philosophy. You have to take courses in metaphysics and epistemology and value theory um, because you, you need to see how everything hangs together. And I just happened to take a class with uh, a professor at the University of Iowa, David Cunning. Um, the guy's just an unbelievable scholar. And he's a Descartes scholar. He had, he was just working on his book on Descartes. Um, and I happened to catch his Descartes seminar as, as he was teaching it. And I, I just, I fell in love with it. it again, it was one of those moments where things just kind of clicked. And, yeah. and I was like, this, this is amazing. I want to think about this forever. Oh, I love that. I want to think about this forever. That's a fantastic statement. So my next question, which I don't know if it's a more difficult one or not, is what do you think that you as an individual uniquely brings to Descartes' scholarship? <laughs> That's an incredibly hard question. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, it's great. It's so good. Well, I, the reason I ask it is because, you know, I'm a musician, and, and, and when we get to the point where we start really um, developing our own sense of artistry, it's uh-huh. really tied into your identity and mm-hmm. what you bring to it. So I'm always curious how that manifests in other areas. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's. Wow, let me think about this for a second. <laughs> we can um, come back to it if you want. <laughs> no, it's okay. I think so. I, th- I think there are maybe two different directions I want to go in trying to answer it. So the first one is in terms of um, kind of the the scholarly community itself, right. mm-hmm. um, and one of the things that that I think is really valuable and really important is trying to situate Descartes in a historical, intellectual, political, social context. Okay. And I'm certainly not alone in doing that. I'm not right. claiming that's that's my, you know, contribution. Um, but I'm I'm actually working on a project with a colleague of mine. Um, she's a, a professor in Germany, um, and we are kind of offering a, a fairly radical reinterpretation of the meditations. Which I mean, again, this is one of the texts that everyone in the world reads when you take a philosophy class. Yeah, uh, you're going to see it in, in intro class. You're going to see it in every modern class. Everybody's who's taken philosophy has probably read the meditations, at least in some, uh, some form or another. Um, and so I'm offering kind of a radical reinterpretation by trying to bring in, uh, what I think are un- underattended, I'll uh-huh. say, okay. um, aspects of the historical context. Ah, cool. Um, so we're, we're grounding it in, um, the sort of Catholic, 
uh, mystical tradition. Oh. And, I mean, it's called the meditations for a reason. Right, right. Uh, the easy part of that claim is to say it's – he's just borrowing the sort of rhetorical features of the of the mystical parts of Catholicism. Um that's the easy part. The, mm. the harder part is to say, I think he actually buys some of that. Mm. Um, and so that's the more radical aspect of the project. So I think that's something that I'm trying to bring to the community itself. I love it. Um, in terms of just sort of what makes it personal for me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not a Catholic. I'm not a mystic, I don't think. <laughs> I, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. I'm not really sure where I stand on all that. Um, to but, be determined. To be determined. <laughs> Um, but for me, what it, what it really comes down to is just kind of um, there's something really fascinating about thinking about Descartes' own views on education, mm. his views on how instruction should work, the ways that he's systematic in approaching problems. Um, and I think that there's a lot that can be learned from that uh, for, for my students, for myself, for people just around. Um, and, and that's the part that kind of makes it personal for me. Perfect. Well, thank you for tackling that. I <laughs> I hope it wasn't too too crazy, but no, I, I mean, it. it was really cool to hear. Um, well, let's depart from Descartes for a bit <laughs> and get into who you talked about today. Um, who I'm just going to say as a mad madge, um, because I just think that is the most fabulous, like, that's fabulous. I want to be mad madge. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about the philosopher, um, scientist, uh, the great mind uh, writer, sci-fi writer, even that you talked about today? I'd be happy to. Yeah. So Margaret Cavendish uh, is just a really compelling figure. Um she was uh, another Enlightenment figure um, working in the uh, the sort of tumultuous 17th century, um, born a little bit after Descartes. Descartes was born in the late uh, 16th century. Um, she was born in the early 17th and was, uh, as I mentioned in the talk, born into a royalist family uh, while the king was being deposed. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, uh, she's living most of her life in exile. Um, her biography is really interesting. Um, her family sort of encouraged her to join the court and to serve uh, Queen Henri Henrietta Maria uh, while they were in exile. So she lived in Paris and Antwerp rather than in England uh, while King Charles was, was kind of thrown out as well. Um, and I, I guess she didn't much care for it. She was very shy, very timid. Um, and, I wouldn't have expected yet, that based on what you said. No, she doesn't sound shy or timid at all. No, and that's that's one of the things that's really fascinating yeah. about her is, um, you know, she she doesn't have the formal training because it's yeah the seventeenth century. Seventeenth century, right? yeah. <laughs> um, but and yet she manages to publish twenty one books and under her own name. She didn't take a pen name, and, right? Uh, which is unheard of. Yeah, and and she was. You know, um, she had tutors, but she wasn't trained in Latin or Greek the, mm -hmm. the way the others were. And so, you know, she's reading in, in translation and kind of working through these other texts. But, um, uh, but despite being sort of timid and not really wanting to directly interact with people, she was on the court and she would publish and, and call out major philosophers by name. And, and she would, I guess, dress very extravagantly and, and sort of in these wild, vivid colors and in ways that uh, earned her this nickname, Mad Madge. Wow. Um, and it's so bizarre because you don't think of someone timid 
being that way, but maybe it's that introvert extrovert combination, you know. Yeah, and yeah. and you had said this morning that she's kind of or that people kind of consider her the first science fiction writer in a way. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so the the text that I mentioned in the lecture this morning um, is the the Blazing World, and it's it's a very peculiar novel. Um, at, I mean, at times it just gets arduous and boring, to be honest, um, because because it really is just about the developments in science that were occurring during her lifetime. Um, but the story is roughly there's this um, this this royalist woman, maybe a princess, maybe not anyway, um, who gets kidnapped and taken on a ship. And there's some jabs at older views about physiology, uh, where the idea is that, you know, men have this, this temper and the, tem and, and so they, by nature are sort of like hot and dry. Um, and, and women tend to be, you know, colder and that yeah. associated somehow with the emotions or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and so they sail north. Um, and as you know, as you sail north, it gets colder and colder. Right. And so all the men freeze to death and she's alive because of her nature, um, which is, of course, just poking fun at all of these wow. views. Um, but, but there's this strange nexus point at the North Pole where she ends up in a different world, the blazing world. Oh. And that is a world that's populated by half human and half animal hybrids. Wow. Um, so she's first found sort of as the boat is drifting by uh, these bear men. So they're <laughs> half men, half bear. Um, and then she gets, she sort of becomes the, the queen of this world and all the different sort of animal human hybrids come and she assigns them different tasks that are suited to their form of knowledge. Um, and so then you have, you know, you have, uh, birds are the astronomers because they're closer to the sky. And so they report back different astronomical theories. Um, you have moles or geologists. And so they come and tell you about the geological findings and, and all these different kinds of things. And, uh, she's adjudicating these disputes. And when you're sort of versed in all of the science at the time, you can hear the voices of different scientists that were publishing in each of the disputes that the different groups are having. Wow. Um, and it's, it's bizarre and interesting and, and it's clearly blending fantasy and yeah. science. Yeah. Right. Um, and so you're just kind of shoving them together and turning it into this really odd text. Wow. How um, she definitely made waves, as you said. Um, uh, but how is this text particularly received? Um, you know, that's a, that's a good question. I don't know that she was really given much mind uh, uh, during her time. It's just the crazy it's, writer in the court, whatever. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, but uh, for sure, uh, in the past 30 to 50 years, people have really started paying a lot of attention to her. Um, there's been movements within philosophy uh, to to bring in more of these these thinkers who just we haven't paid attention yeah, to right. they're out there they've done so much cool stuff wow. um and so it's it's exciting to kind of get in on that and to to be able to to bring it to more people wow if she only knew you know that here the dawn of 2021 we're talking about <laughs> her bear men at the north pole <laughs> 
All right. Well, uh, you know, you mentioned this idea of the blending of science and and fiction or fantasy or imagination. And I'd love to get into that as it relates to education and curriculum mm -hmm. in our next break. But before we do that, I have another song to play. Um, and this song, it's called Caffeine. And the reason I chose it was sort of playfully because um, as I was doing my research, I think you are a, a coffee lover, a coffee connoisseur. Is that right? That is correct, yes. <laughs> do you have any favorite brands? Oh, my. Uh, so many. Um, so throughout graduate school and as an undergraduate, I worked as a barista. Oh, no um, way. I didn't. That's perfect. I love it. <laughs> um, and I, I, I worked for small companies primarily. Um, I've, I've uh, uh, in, this is something I sometimes tell my students and they're usually blown away by it. I've competed internationally. Uh, I had a friend from uh, who was, who lived in Iowa City when I was there and he went and founded a cafe in Paris. And so he held the competition on Bastille Day. That's and awesome. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, What's your favorite way to take your coffee? Because most people who are connoisseurs are like, no, just black. As long as the beans are good, that's what I want. Yep. That's that's how I am too. Okay. Um, I don't go for sweeteners or anything. Um, I like espresso. Um, I like, I, I personally use a Chemex. Um, ah. Uh, French press is also fantastic. Okay. I, I love those as well. Um, honestly, I just, I just love coffee. And so um, by itself, unaided, it's, it's exactly what I want. Perfect. Well, <laughs> this song is called Caffeine. Um, the artist is Lolo Zouai, uh, Z-O-U-A-I. Um, check it out. See what you think. You're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. Oh 
All right. Well, welcome back. Uh, that song was called Caffeine, and we were having so much fun talking about coffee here in the studio. But the artist for that is Lolo Zui, um, L-O-L-O-Z-O-U-A-I, if you're interested. She's really cool. Um, and as usual, just to let you know, all of the music that I play on the Apex Hour are available on our website, um, which is seu.edu slash Apex. Um, and on the podcast, tab, um, you'll see a Spotify, a link, and then the Spotify playlist. Um, it's called Played on Apex Hour. It's a public playlist on Spotify, and I just dump all the songs into it each week. And so there's a huge collection with a huge variety in there. So um, we're going to continue our discussion about philosophy and take it to higher ed and education. Um, Chris Phillips is in the studio. Welcome back. Thanks so much. Let's get into it. Okay, so you said some amazing things today about um, about what education is, maybe what it should be, what it can be, all these things. And I'd love to kind of dig into it a little bit more. Um, let's just start with a little background. Um, you know, this idea that education, um, the practicality of education versus vocationality. I loved mm-hmm. when you mentioned that and you said, oh, we can talk about that more. And I say, yes, let's talk <laughs> about that more. Um, y- of course, an education, you know, is leaning towards jobs. That's, that's where we're going, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, tell me a little bit about your opinions about practicality. How important is the practicality of an education and how does that differ from, if it does differ from the vocationality? Right. Um, so I think that in many ways, higher education is just by its very nature, deeply impractical. Yeah. Um, it, it, much, much of what we're doing doesn't really seem obviously applicable to everyone's day-to-day life. Um, and, and I should maybe preface all of this by saying that I, I don't think there's anything in any way wrong or in any sense less than a college education in terms of a vocational training. Right. Um, I, I think they're just different. They're things. different. Exactly. Um, and yeah. so that's all, that's all I'm saying. Um, so certainly, you know, uh, as a philosopher, I'm not the most skilled person <laughs> when it comes to things that actually matter in my day to day life. Um, I, I, tr- I, tried to install uh, a light fixture in my own house and nearly electrocuted myself. So, you know, I, I recognize that the, that's a type of skill that Disclaimer I should... Disclaimer made. Right. You know, I need to, I need to defer to experts. Um, yeah. And so, so I just wanted to say that. But, but one thing I think that um, is really strange is that we have this kind of collective social idea that education or a degree ought to be practical, but it's not clear what that even means. Um, and so... Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I did some some digging into this and found that um, uh, the way that we at least define or think about or talk about practicality doesn't really map on to education much at all. Mm. Um, certainly, there are practical skills we need to be able to communicate with one another, to read or write. These are practical things in a day-to-day sense. Uh, but by and large... Um, You know, at least the dictionary definition, which I typically don't like to appeal to dictionaries, but let's start with, you know, let's start somewhere. Yeah. Um, says that, that practicality or, uh, is concerned with practice rather than theory. Right. Um, and so if that's what we mean by it, then college is not that. Right. Because college is about understanding the theory. Right. Um, 
if we want to go that route, even I think any sort of training is probably not going to be that. We need some theory to help make sense of the practice. Mm -hmm. We need theories about ballistics. We need theories about physics. We need right. to think about how things interact with one another right. at an abstract level. So it seems like that's not a great way to go. Um, if we think, okay, well, uh, a college degree is practical because it will lead you to getting a job that's hot right now. Right. Um, well, markets change awfully fast. Yeah. And this is kind of one of the worries that I have. You know, you can – sure, maybe we could train you in in high school or in college in a particular computer language. And that would be great for six months. Right. Um, but if you're not able to sort of take that step back and think about things at the broader level – um, engage in the abstract, impractical kind of reflections that can sometimes seem like they're navel-gazing or mm -hmm. nonsense or whatever, if you can't think about them at that level, then when all of a sudden that programming language is no longer relevant, you need to learn a new one, and then you're right back in the classroom again. Right, right. And so I think that, you know, kind of by and large, we – we don't want it's it's probably much better for us if we think about education as uh sort of teaching us to think about things right. not what to think or not how to do a specific skill but how to approach problems how to think about solving problems how to approach a novel problem how to take things we've learned from other problems that are maybe seemingly totally distinct but borrow from that and pull it into this new arena and think things through in that way and what that takes, uh, I'm afraid, is is a ton of impractical right. type thinking. Well, I love that description um, and that uh, appeal to to why these so-called impractical things are important, and and that kind of leads me down a track of you know this adaptability component, which we have seen in the last year to be absolutely essential. And mm -hmm. um, so. Let me ask you this, which may be complicated, and that is, um, in your ideal world, how does the university education play out? Because mm -hmm. in your in your talk, and we can get into this a little bit, I mean, you you certainly acknowledge the importance and essential aspect of science, STEM, all these things, mm -hmm. but then you do such a great job of talking about how the humanities or the imaginative or however you want to identify those other things, more fanciful things, um, how those perhaps fuel the, 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 those essential sciences and all that. So I'm curious what, you know, if, if you ran the world, what, 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 what would it look like? How do we, how do we make this beautiful education? Does it walk both lines or not? Do we separate vocation, science, humanities? Do we, mm -hmm. what do you, what, what do you want? That's a, that is a really good question. Um, I mean, I think what I want uh, is is everyone to to be, I would say, fairly well rounded. So mm -hmm. I, I, you know, it's it's um, I think really important that humanities folks uh, are well versed in basic mathematics and in science. Right. Uh, but I think it's equally important that our STEM students are, um, you know, equally versed in the humanities fields and in the arts and in music and in literature. 
Uh, and in fact, uh, at one point a couple of years ago, I uh, made the argument, um, and I think I stand by it, uh, <laughs> that we actually have a, a sort of moral obligation to ourselves to study something like the humanities, to be well-rounded, to think about ethics, to think about the implications of what we're doing, to, to, to better ourselves in these ways, regardless of what we're doing. Um, I think that, uh, so in the ideal world, it's very far from where we are now. We would start teaching logic and reasoning right alongside basic arithmetic. Uh, I don't know why we're not doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes my logic students have even said things along the same lines after taking my class and, and not just because I tell them, <laughs> but they organically come to that same decision. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I mean, so I, I think I would have students take foreign languages too. Mm -hmm. I would make that a requirement for, for all students. Um, if only because I, myself, I grew up, my dad was an English professor. I don't think I really understood grammar until I learned a different language. Mm -hmm. Um, and everything clicked all of a sudden. It's right. Like, oh, right. Okay. It's not just what sounds right because nothing sounds right in a foreign language mm -hmm. when you're first learning it. Um, and so you have to learn the grammar. Um, and so I think that's really valuable. And also learning another language helps you kind of reconceptualize the world around you. Mm -hmm. um, you have to be very intentional and really think about what things mean. And, you know, English is not a gendered language. Mm -hmm. And so why are some inanimate objects masculine and some feminine and some uh, gender neutral? Um, why would that be? Let's think about these sorts of things. And it kind of provides an avenue. I mean, again, it's, it's a, a sort of luxury that I think a lot of university students have. Um, but I think that's something that, that insofar as we're at a university, we ought to be encouraging all of that. So how do you think now taking a bit away from the, the pie in the sky ideal, let's maybe go a bit more practical, I mean, mm -hmm. for lack of a better word, on, on how we can move forward in the current world we're living in, which, which is fairly siloed. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, there are some special, wonderful things happening in terms of collaboration and cross-discipline thing. But generally speaking, we're seeing a little more of that siloing of STEM is here and vocation is here and, you know, the arts are here. And do you have any recommendations um, for students, teachers, parents, um, or thoughts about how can we improve the current system? Yeah. Um, as far as what I would say to students, um, the first thing is just slow down. Mm. Um, I mean, I understand that there's kind of an excitement to, to get through school and get done and get out and, and live your life. Uh, but I, I think college is, is a really unique opportunity uh, to be surrounded by interesting thoughtful, intelligent people. Um, and to try to rush through that or force it, I think is, is really a mistake. So just slow down and enjoy it. Yeah. Um, one of the things I often say to my students when they're, you know, um, they'll come to me sometimes and say things like, well, I could be done in, you know, six months early. Um, and then I'm, I just ask why. Yeah. Um, cool. Do you think when you're looking back on your life, sort of maybe as you retire or, you know, heaven forbid on your deathbed, you're mm -hmm. going to think like, boy, I'm glad I worked those extra six months. <laughs> or, or do you want to take that opportunity to, I don't know, study abroad or, yeah. or just, just be around people in a college environment? Um, it seems to me that that would be much more rewarding. Yeah. Um, there's plenty of time to work throughout your life. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
So, so how do we how do we address that? Well, one is to slow down, and I mean there are obvious concerns about this, right? There are financial concerns. There's yeah. scholarships and all these kinds of things, um, and so there are practical necessities. Um, but again, I'm a philosopher. I kind of think in big picture idealist stuff. Uh, I mean, I would like to see um, maybe SEU kind of buck the trend of, of limiting general education or mm -hmm. trying to condense it. It's a national trend and we're just kind of going along with it. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that that gets complicated with accreditation for different programs and things. Again, these are the sort of practical necessities. But if there's some way that we could kind of bolster the general education curriculum, give students the flexibility to try different things out, yeah. see what clicks with them to return to what we said before, um, you know, and, and just kind of encourage people to pursue things that they love. I think that would be uh, maybe a better way to go. I love it. That sounds great. Um, one other question I wanted to ask you is uh, more timely. Uh, and that is that I've been thinking a lot. Uh, we're, we're launching a new project to sort of collect reflections on how COVID has transformed our areas. And mm -hmm. I was just curious, um, in the area of philosophy, uh, what has thinking about writing about talking about analyzing the pandemic? What what sort of sort of maybe themes or changes or how has the pandemic shifted anything in philosophy? What what has it done to the philosophy world? Uh, that's a, another spectacular question. And, uh, you know, I think in a lot of ways, some of the things that, that it's done to philosophy are the same things it's done to everyone in higher education. Um, we're all kind of grappling with how do we shift to largely online modalities? How do we, um, how do we think about how to approach our students and ourselves? Um, what, what are the, I can say personally, my approach has kind of been like, well, what exactly is the purpose of the class that I'm offering? Yeah. And I, I tend to try to be reflective about that, but this has really forced it in a novel way. Yeah. Interesting. Um, you know, now it's, it's, for me, it's kind of always been less about how much content can I sort of like cram into my student's head and much more about, well, let's, let's just make sure you understand material and that you're thinking and that you're right. kind of engaged in the philosophical dialogue, because I think that's what philosophy is largely about. Um, and now it's just kind of like, okay, well, why was I, why did I have the specific deadlines I had? Mm. Why was I insisting on these particular de deadlines? Is it more important that students meet deadlines or that they actually understand material? Um, or that they have developed the skills that I'm asking them to develop? Um, and so in those ways, it's, it's forced me to kind of rethink that. Um, I think more broadly in, in the philosophical discussions, um, you know, I mean, we have it, the past several years have been a really interesting time <laughs> to think about uh, knowledge and belief and yeah. evidence. Right. Um, and so questions about fake news, questions about what exactly counts as good scientific explanation as opposed to bad. Right. What, do, what do we think about vaccines? What do we think about conspiracy theories? What yeah. do we think about? And so all of these kinds of things are, um, you know, um, forcing, I would say, in some way, forcing the hand of the philosopher to, to kind of think like, oh, wow, okay, uh, there is a lot to work with here. Um, what it, <laughs> how do we make sense of yeah. uh, these entirely coherent 
internally coherent, um, but kind of outwardly insane conspiracy theories. Like, what do we, what do we do with that? Yeah. How do we how do is it just the case that these people are uh, behaving in a way that's irrational, or is it that they're they're perfectly rational? It's just that they've insulated themselves. And how does technology factor into all right. of this? And what are the ethics of you know, algorithms and things that are feeding all of these kinds of th- all of these issues? And so there's uh, just a huge number of I think novel or at least semi-novel philosophical questions that are cropping up that that we really need to do some careful thinking about. Yeah. Cool. Oh, my gosh, I can't wait to read more about that and see how that evolves over the years to come. Well, this has been fantastic. I mean, we could keep going and going and going. I've been so enjoying my time. We're almost done. And I have my uh, last sort of favorite question that I always ask. And this is just a very uh, playful, kind of random question. And um, it's just kind of about what's turning you on right now. And it's, uh, it can be anything, you know, sometimes people will say, a book that they're reading or a movie or TV show or their favorite food or their favorite, whatever. I mean, any, anything, it can be anything at all, but the question is what's turning you on right now. So Chris Phillips, what is turning you on right now? That's such a, there's so many different things. (laughs) Well, Uh, you could do a few, Yeah, but what comes to mind? Uh, you know, right off the top of my head, um, something that I that I had just started doing um, a little bit more before the pandemic hit in the before times, as I call it, yeah. uh, is I was playing records at the uh, at the brewery here in town. Oh yeah, um, and um, you know it was it was nicer weather, and so we'd sit out on the patio and I would play some yacht rock. Um, <laughs> Yacht That's Rock, great. right? The the sort of Kenny Loggins, Michael McDonald, nineteen seventies <laughs> West Coast sound. Um, outside, ready outside. for the sunset. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, so that's really that's kind of gotten me through a lot of things. Um, just kind of enjoying that. Uh, Do you have a favorite album right now of those? I don't know that I have a favorite album, um, but uh, but. My dad, I, I reached out to my dad and I said, you know, I'm looking, I'm looking for more. Um, so send me some stuff. So he just sent me a bunch of Steely Dan. Oh, that's great. I'm pretty psyched about that. And uh, so now that we're not necessarily outdoors doing that in the same way, do you, is that like a, a, a weekly evening tradition or do you have, or just whenever you have time? Uh, yeah, it's largely whenever I have time. Nice. Um, I have a, a, a nice setup at home. I love to just put some records on and, and sit, uh, sit with my dog and, and, uh, just kind of listen to music. It's great. <laughs> Perfect. I'm coming knocking on your door. That sounds like a nice evening. Well, Chris, I'd like to say thank you so much for this really fun and interesting conversation. And congratulations again on your award of Faculty Distinguished Lecture for SUU for this year. Thanks for being with us today. Well, thanks so much. It's been fun. It's been great. Okay, well, we'll sign off for now. And we'll see everybody next week. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu slash apex. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1.